Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 113. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. And I'm Dr. Patel. And today's title is the top 10 clinical pearls for total parenteral nutrition or TPN. So today we're going through not a comprehensive review of TPN and giving IV nutrition to patients, but kind of the top 10 pearls that are kind of our subjective, what we think are key elements that every pharmacist really should know about TPN administration and dosing and things like that. And this was actually one of our listener requested subject. So we thank you for that request. And I'm actually really excited to learn uh, or refresh my memory because this is not the practice setting that I, you know, encounter TPNs on a regular basis. So with that, let's get started. Yeah. So pearl number one is going to be if the gut works, use it. And really knowing about TPN is important, but knowing when to not use TPN is also really important. So basically patients are indicated for TPN if they are malnourished and we think that they're going to be NPO for a while, or if they are not malnourished, we literally wait seven days before we would initiate TPN for a patient. And that's really important that if someone comes in who's not malnourished and we know that we're not going to be able to feed them, we will literally wait seven days before starting that TPN in that patient. And that sounds like a really long time, but they're getting IV hydration and things like that. They're just not getting protein, fats, and dextrose in IV formulation for that first seven days. So it may sound extreme that while wow, you're kind of quote unquote starving them for seven days, but there must be a reason why we can't give TPNs earlier than seven days, right, Dr. Kane? Yeah. And you know what? What's interesting about this is that this was a classic argument between Europe and the US. So historically, Europe loved to give TPN early on. And in America, we typically did not. We would wait that full seven days. Um, it turns out that we've done some studies on this. And generally speaking, if you had to take all the studies and kind of condense it down to a soundbite, um, giving TPN can be harmful. So you have to have a central line. Um, and that is an invasive device for a patient. You know, bacteria love the same stuff that is in TPN, which is nutrition, right? So TPN is associated with the risk of infection, hyperglycemia, liver damage. There are other complications of TPN. It's expensive. So if by day seven, a patient doesn't need TPN, you've saved a lot of money. And then most importantly, and as it relates to the, the randomized controlled trials that are out there that really kind of uh, settled the argument for more or less between Europe and the U.S., clinical outcomes are not different if you wait seven days versus if you initiate early TPN. The main primary endpoints in most of the trials have been 30, 60, or 90-day mortality rates, and they have not been different. So then you look at secondary endpoints and things like infectious risk is higher, cost is higher, um, clinical outcomes are not really that different. So there is no reason to give an invasive uh, costly therapy if it doesn't change any outcomes, and it may be associated with harm, which is why we're going to wait seven days uh, to initiate TPN in someone who can't have adequate oral nutrition. And that, that makes absolute sense. So now just like nutrition concept in general, you know, I feel like the component of the TPNs have the macronutrients, which is like the carbs, the fat, the protein, and then the micronutrients. So 
Let's talk about some of the macronutrients, especially fat. What is the composition of fat and how much of the, you know, cholesterol versus fatty acids that we're going to need? Yeah. So clinical pearl number two is that everyone needs just a little bit of fat. So typically when we dose a TPN, the way that we figure out how much fat a patient should get is we figure out the number of calories they need, how much protein they need. And then uh, based on that, we figure out how many non-protein calories a patient needs. And among the non-protein calories, about a third of that is going to be from fat and about um, the remainder, about two thirds or up to 70% is going to be from dextrose. So uh, that's our typical calculation, but it turns out that everyone needs some amount of fat. And there's a syndrome called essential fatty acid deficiency or EFAD. Um, and this can actually happen in patients that get no fat at all. So if someone gets zero fat, within about two to four weeks, they can actually develop the syndrome just because they don't have a, a sufficient number of lipids. So the way that you prevent EFAD from happening is that you give at least the minimum amount of lipids to a patient. Um, the minimum is 100 grams a week of lipids. So to put it into context, it's about 500 mLs of a 20% lipid emulsion, which is what many institutions use for their fat emulsion, or about a liter of propofol per week. Just to give it context, like most patients on propofol will use at least 250 mLs a day. So it's pretty easy to, to get to that threshold. So we are, we're talking about, like, say, for example, somebody who is uh, on TPNs and on propofol on top of that, you're probably covering some of the fat-related uh, nutrition out of the propofol solution, so may not need to add that into TPN. But this was just the context example. So if they're not on propofol, obviously, we're going to have to add this into TPN. Yeah. So I guess two points. One, absolutely propofol matters. And we have to account for that when figuring out how many calories patients are getting, but also if they even need IV fat in addition to their propofol. And usually the answer to that is no. And then number two, you know, it's not okay to just have a patient getting, you know, uh, 5% dextrose for a long amount of time, maybe adding some protein to it. That's not going to be enough. Patients do need fat. So it's not that much, but patients still need some amount of fat. Otherwise, it could potentially have this essential fatty acid deficiency syndrome. So you need a little bit and you don't need to kind of overdo it, but there's some minimum amount that all patients will need. And I think it's worth also mentioning the reason that we use fat is that it's a very calorically dense macronutrient. So in some patients, we increase the amount of fat that we give them simply to give them less dextrose, for example. If hyperglycemia is an issue, uh, but we want to maintain the same number of calories, we can play around with the ratio between fat and dextrose for those patients, uh, depending on patient-specific factors. Clinical pearl number three still relates to the macronutrients looking at lipids. So as I mentioned, typically the way that we dose lipids is about 30% or about a third of your non-protein calories are going to be made up of fat. Now that's like the, the very like type A way to dose lipids for a patient. My preferred method that we use at my institution that I really like actually is kind of a lazier way of doing it, which is basically giving a bottle a day. So a bottle of intralipid, which is IV fat emulsion, it's a 20% fat emulsion, 250 mLs. If I give a patient one bottle, 250 mLs a day of that, it's more than enough to prevent the essential fatty acid deficiency. And for most patients, it actually ends up being roughly about a third of their non-protein calories. So this way, when you hang that bottle, especially if you're doing a two-in-one TPN where the lipids are separate from the rest of the TPN, all the nurse has to do is hang the bottle till it's empty and then she's done with it. As opposed to, you know, if I wanted to give 300 mLs, that means that they're gonna have to, you know, only use a portion of a bottle. It's more time, it's more waste, things like that. 
And the other benefit here is if a patient has, let's say, hypertriglyceridemia from our lipid, we can now just do a bottle every other day or every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That's still more than enough to prevent the essential fatty acid deficiency because, again, you really only need 500 mLs per week of this stuff. Um, and if you're doing every other day or um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're going to be well above that. And that would be a way to deal with the high triglycerides, but still giving the patient adequate calories and not having to deal with like portions of bottles that the patients need and stuff like that. The game is a little bit different for a three-in-one TPM where you just put the fat inside the bag. Nobody cares how much of the bottle you use, but especially for a two-in-one TPM, this is a really nice way to do it. And it seems like we're here talking about just ease of administration and I guess ease of TPN calculations because those could be complicated. Oh yeah, absolutely. And TPN is one of those things that there's so many calculations that are involved. You really want to find opportunities to make it as simple as you can. Simple is better for this. And as you add complexity, that's where error happens, where you can make critical calculation errors where you end up potentially harming the patient because you kind of lost the forest and the trees. So um, I'm all about for TPNs, keeping it simple, keeping it straightforward. And I think that this is one way to do that. That's a good mantra to follow. And so now the other macronutrients that we talk about is glucose or dextrose, right? And it's it's not at the same level, right? I think dextrose is a little bit different than glucose. And it's that's the key number four, the point number four that we want to emphasize here. Yeah. So if you think about it, like Dr. Patel, for your diabetic patients, they don't check a serum dextrose, they check a serum glucose. We give oral glucose, right? But then we Correct. give IV dextrose. So at face value, it would almost seem like dextrose is a different sugar molecule than glucose, but that's actually not the case at all. And that's really interesting that by convention, we have different nomenclature, even though they're effectively the same molecule. And so they're basically, we're talking about two different isomers, right? We have the D-glucose, that's what we use for energy and what's produced in nature. And then there's the L-glucose, which is the synthetic form and can't really use for the energy. So when we are talking about TPNs, the D-isomer of the glucose is essentially what our dextrose is. Yeah. So when we say dextrose, we mean glucose. And when we mean glucose, we mean dextrose. However, in TPN, when we give dextrose, we're actually giving D-glucose monohydrate. Now that monohydrate is important because when we give parenteral glucose in the form of D-glucose monohydrate, the monohydrate decreases our caloric density. So normally glucose or glucose has a caloric density of four kilocalories per gram. But when you have that monohydrate in there, now, because you have some water with every gram of sugar, now your IV dextrose caloric density goes from four down to 3.4 kilocalories per gram. So there is a, a slight difference in the caloric density, even though the chemical structures are identical, that monohydrate makes a difference. And we have to just then make up for that 0.6 kilocalorie per gram difference basically here. Yeah, you just didn't include it in your calculation, but it matters a little bit because especially when I was a student, I didn't really appreciate the difference between glucose versus dextrose and just understanding that they're effectively the same thing, except when you give it IV, it has a monohydrate associated with it. And that monohydrate changes the caloric density a little bit. That makes um, a lot of sense. And now I appreciate the difference here too. 
Um, the point number five we want to make is about some of the micronutrients. So, you know, we add things such as magnesium and phosphate and calcium into the TPN. And we want to emphasize that we, we can't put too much of the phosphate and calcium into the TPN. And, and that, that we're going to talk about the risk associated with that. Yeah. So like typically in a TPN, we do add phosphate because if we don't, eventually the patient will have a low phosphate level. So typical amounts of phosphate are going to be around like 20 to 40 millimoles per day of phosphate. Typical amounts of calcium that we put in is going to be around 10 to 15 milliequivalents per day, which is about two grams of calcium gluconate. So neither of these are like high doses of phosphate or calcium. This would be like a, a typical normal amount that you would give IV to a patient that had a low level. Mm -hmm. And you're doing this essentially so that if a patient is NPO for a long enough time period that they have these electrolytes and they don't have to leach them from their bones and stuff like that. And that's great. Uh, the problem though is that phosphate and calcium love to bind to each other. So actually when you prepare a TPN, you're always going to start with one or the other as your first ingredient, and then you're going to use the other one as your very last ingredient. So for example, when making a TPN, a TPN compounder might start with the calcium as its first electrolyte and then add phosphate at, at the very end as its very last electrolyte. So by doing that, you can reduce the risk of a calcium phosphate precipitate forming in the TPN during compounding. And really, one of the reasons that we don't add that much is that the risk of precipitation goes up with the higher concentrations in TPN of phosphate or calcium. So you're kind of limited um, in terms of how much of either one you can put into a TPN. Yeah, I, I do remember making sure um, that, you know, we want to use the right amount for this. This is where the TPN calculation would come in handy. We want to make sure that we're not using more than what's needed. Otherwise, precipitation can happen. And again, goes back to the technique of how we mix these two together. But something tells me that this may be a non-issue because most patients um, don't need more than the usual dose of the calcium. Correct, Dr. Kane? Absolutely. And this is probably one of the most common errors that I see when students evaluate a TPN. When we get our Chem 7 plus mag, phos, and calcium, almost every ICU patient and most hospitalized patients will have low albumin levels. Albumin is a negative acute phase reactant, which means that when you get sick, your albumin levels naturally drop as part of your stress response and your inflammatory response. And that matters because calcium is highly bound to albumin. So as your albumin drops, your calcium will also falsely become low. So normal calcium is about eight to 10, we'll say. So having calciums in the sixes and sevens is not uncommon, but it's a falsely low calcium level. So you actually have to correct for hypoalbuminemia with calcium. And when you do that corrected calcium, correcting for that low albumin, almost all patients will end up in a normal range between roughly eight to 10. So at face value, you see a calcium level of six and a half and you're like, oh man, I got to go hog wild and add as much calcium as possible to get that calcium level where it needs to be. But in reality, the calcium level's fine when you account for their albumin. Um, so most of these patients don't need extra calcium. And in fact, they have plenty of calcium temporarily in their bones if they really needed it. And again, we add it so that they don't have to leach from their bones, but most patients can just have the effectively two grams of calcium gluconate per day and do perfectly fine with that. You don't need to keep going up and up and up on that unless there's something else going on for the patient. So adding one more step into the calculation, we're emphasizing here that we, we should really look for that corrected calcium when coming up with the dose. Absolutely. And this is probably like one of the most common pearls that comes up with respect to TPN because it's such an easy mistake to make when evaluating a patient's electrolytes. 
So point number seven is um, interesting too. We were talking about sodium content. And it's important because, you know, we're looking at milliequivalents, you know, the, the ranges and the doses and the comparison with, with what's normal in the human blood versus the normal saline that, you know, patient is, uh, we're compounding the TPNs with. So um, let's, let's talk about that, Dr. Kane. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that makes TPN hard, especially dosing it, is as pharmacists, we're very familiar with like how much sodium is in normal saline, 154 milliequivalents per liter. But when it comes to TPN, one issue is that TPNs are often described in different ways of describing the dose. So for example, some institutions will dose sodium and TPNs as milliequivalents per liter. Others will do milliequivalents per day. Others will do milliequivalents per kilogram per liter. And there's all sorts of other variants out there. So what ends up happening is that, you know, as pharmacists, we end up losing sight and clinical context of the drugs that we're putting into the TPN. So my number one tip when it comes to sodium is always convert your sodium in your TPN to milliequivalents per liter, and then contrast that with milliequivalents per liter of sodium with other fluids that you're more familiar with. So for example, normal saline has 154 milliequivalents per liter of sodium, which is actually hypernatremic. That's like more sodium than your blood, which is 135 to 145. So it would be a big red flag if you have a TPN with more than 154 milliequivalents per liter of sodium, because effectively you're giving them uh, a very hypernatremic solution that probably the patient doesn't need that much sodium unless, again, there's something really goofy going on with them. And yeah, again, we have other uh, IV solutions that also have Sodium in them, so like lactated ringers has 130 milliequivalents per liter. Half normal saline, which is considered basically a maintenance IV infusion, has 77 milliequivalents per liter. And of course, D5W has no sodium in it, zero milliequivalents per liter. So probably your TPN should have some number in terms of amount of sodium between zero, the equivalent of D5W, all the way up to 154 milliequivalents per liter, the equivalent of normal saline. And if you're not in that range, you probably need to really closely evaluate what is going on and why are you going outside of that range? Why does the patient need that much sodium in their TPN, for example? Yeah, and then a lot of the time when it comes to, you know, your calculations for the sodium, if it's off, you probably want to look at the the water amount, right? It's If you're looking at the hyponatremia or hypernatremia, it's probably because either we're getting too much, the patient's getting too much fluid or too little fluid. Uh, and when I say fluid, it's water. Absolutely. And that, that's another key component of this number seven, Dr. Patel, is when you see, let's say, hypernatremia, Usually it's not because the patient has ingested too much sodium, it's that they don't have enough water. Or if mm -hmm. they're hyponatremic, they have too much free water, they've been chugging down water, and we have to get rid of some of that free water. So most of the time, changing the sodium in your TPN is doing absolutely nothing. In terms of uh, altering the patient's serum sodium, most of the time you're actually needing to alter the amount of water that they get, not the sodium. And that's actually true with most hyper and hyponatremias anyway. It's usually not a salt problem or a sodium problem. It's usually a problem of water. I 100% agree with you. Yes. Number eight deals with how we give the other electrolytes. So uh, Dr. Patel, if you think about it, when you add sodium to a TPN, we can't take like a stick of sodium and throw it in the TPN, pure sodium, right? We have to have a salt form of it. So, yeah, so we we're thinking about like sodium chloride or when we we're talking about potassium, perhaps potassium chloride. Exactly. And basically for sodium and potassium, which are the main electrolytes that you're adding to that TPN, your options are sodium or potassium phosphate, sodium or potassium chloride, 
and sodium or potassium acetate. So, you know, when we give sodium phosphate, we're really giving it for the phosphate component, not the sodium component. So effectively, when we're trying to give extra sodium or extra potassium to a patient, we have to decide, do we want to add the chloride salt or the acetate salt to the patient? You know, the balance of those two is actually dictated by the acid-base balance of the patient. So when you're saying the balance, let's say we have a patient with no acid-base issues, so meaning their acids and bases are fine, then we're going to aim in the TPN maybe a 50-50 mix when it comes to a chloride versus acetate. Exactly. So let's say that uh, for that normal patient, no acid-base problems, you wanted to give them 40 milliequivalents of potassium. That 50-50 mix would mean that you would be giving, of that 40 milliequivalents of potassium, 20 milliequivalents would come from potassium chloride, 20 would come from potassium acetate. Therefore, you're giving a 50-50 mix. Right. And the reason is, like we said, you know, we're really accounting for any kind of acid-base imbalances. So if there is too much chloride, uh, it's going to act as an acid. It's going to um, decrease the pH, right? So it becomes more acidic and decrease the bicarb. Um, and it's going to increase, obviously, the chloride, the serum chloride itself. And this could ultimately result into acidemia. Yeah. So, you know, more common is, especially in the ICU, we see lots of lactic acidosis. We see plenty of acidic patients. So alkalosis is a little bit less common. So the more common scenario is that you have that patient with a low bicarb, lower pH, chloride is higher because they got three liters of normal saline, which is an acidic solution. So more commonly, what we actually have to do is give a little bit more acetate. So for um, acetate, it eventually turns into bicarb effectively in the patient. So by giving an acetate-based salt, you can make their bicarb go up and help correct for an acid-based balance or imbalance that the patient has. Potentially, you could go as far as giving all of your salt as the acetate. So you could potentially give 100% of your sodium as sodium acetate, 100% of your potassium as potassium acetate, depending on how severe that patient's acid-based balance is and how they're responding to the TPN that you made yesterday and how you're adjusting it today. So in a nutshell, look at the patient's acid base status. If it's normal, do 50-50. If it's not normal, then you can actually adjust the amount of chloride and acetate salts. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Dr. Patel, number nine is right up your alley. So my clinical pearl number nine is, in most circumstances, we should not be adding insulin inside the TPN to treat hyperglycemia. And if you think about it, this is like something that seems so intuitive, right? So you have all this sugar in a bag that you're giving IV to a patient. And if they're getting hyperglycemic, why would you not add insulin into the bag so that while they're getting the sugar water, they also get insulin to help with that hyperglycemia? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And really the reasons are a couple fold here. Um, in insulin actually gets absorbed into the TPN bag or the tubing. So let's say we have 10 units of insulin in the TPA, for example, and we don't, don't really know how much is going to be absorbed in that bag or the tube and how much the patient's going to ultimately get. So it gives us that unpredictability. Um, and then secondly, let's say a patient has hypoglycemia because we added too much TPN or they just had too much insulin running. Now there is insulin running, there is you know hypoglycemia, and now we've already added insulin in the TPN. So we can't really give that TPN anymore because it's going to further aggravate the hypoglycemia. 
And we just made this expensive bag of TPN. It's just sitting there. So patient probably won't be able to receive the TPN that day. We, want, we don't want to do that either. And so the real approach here for the management of the hyperglycemia, rather than adding the insulin in the TPN bag, is to perhaps recalculate the amount of dextrose we're going to add in the TPN, or on the separate side, just correct it with the um, sub-Q insulin therapy. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the dextrose, like patients are going to need calories, right? So if you want to give them less dextrose, but still give them adequate calories, in many instances, you can just increase the amount of lipids that you're giving the patient and decrease that dextrose so that um, that can be one strategy for the, helping with hyperglycemia. And really, if you think about it, as annoying as it is, if you will, of giving subcutaneous insulin, people are really familiar with subcutaneous insulin. We give it all the time. People know about basal strategies and sliding scales and correction factors and all that stuff. So you have so much flexibility by giving it subcutaneously versus when you make a bag, that bag is a 24-hour bag. There's nothing you can do to adjust at that point. And you are in a lot of trouble if they do get hypoglycemic because now that bag is going to make them more hypoglycemic because of that insulin that you put in it. So that predictability, the familiarity with subcutaneous insulin makes this a pretty clear winner when making that TPN. It makes sense. You know, we don't want to waste the, the TPN because we have to stop it or, you know, it's or not have the patient get the other nutrients that were part of the TPN right. bag. So Dr. Kane, I do remember when practicing as a resident in the inpatient setting that there has to be a particular way the TPN gets uh, administered uh, when we are talking about the IV lines and stuff. So that's that's where we are talking about a specialized IV filter, correct? Yeah. And, you know, as Pharmacists, oftentimes these drugs are given by nurses, so we're not necessarily at the bedside to appreciate the nuances of how they're given to a patient. So this is an area that I think I'm, I've always been a little bit less familiar with, but at the same time, when nurses don't know how a given drug should be administered, we're usually the first people that they call about that. So um, in terms of TPNs, because of things like having calcium phosphate in the TPN and other items that you're going to add to the TPN, TPNs will have some amount of microprecipitates, so insoluble compounds that will never form into a full solution. And basically, you don't want that to go into a patient's blood. Those microprecipitates, if they're big enough, can cause harm to the patient. So to avoid those from getting into the patient's blood, you must use a filter for all TPNs before it gets to the patient. And the kind of filter you use is based on whether you have fat in the bag, or that would be called a three-in-one TPN, where your fat dextrose and protein are all in the same bag, or if you're using a two-in-one bag where you have fat separate from your protein and dextrose and electrolytes, and that fat is infused in its own dedicated line. So then the that's where the size of the filter kind of separates, right? So when you're talking about three-in-one where we have the fat in it, we're going to use a little bit of larger filter. We're talking about 1.2 micron um, because a smaller filter can be clogged by these fat globs or the emulsion. Um, and then the two-in-one, which is, you know, fat is separate, is just protein, uh, dextrose, and other micronutrients. And we could use a smaller filter, the 0.22 micron filter. Yeah. So those fat globs are about 0.5 microns in width. So the 0.22 micron is going to clog because the fat globs are just going to clog up that 0.22 micron filter. So for the three-in-one, you are kind of forced to use a larger 1.2 micron filter. 
But for the two-in-one, there's no reason to not use that, that really small filter to get rid of as many microprecipitates as you can. So in terms of some key concepts from these 10 clinical pearls, one big key concept is fats. So essential fatty acid deficiency or EFAD, you can prevent this just by giving 500 mLs, which is typically two bottles of a 20% lipid emulsion once a week. And my preferred method of dosing lipids is kind of this lazier method where you just give a bottle a day or a bottle every other day if a patient has hypertriglyceridemia. And that makes the lipid dosing incredibly straightforward and gives you less opportunity for error when making TPN-based calculations. And because, you know, we're considering TPN when patient, is, you know, it's my malnourished, we're going to see lower level of albumin. So it's a Q-phase reactant. And what it means is that when we are looking at calcium doses, we don't need to be giving escalating doses because we need to account for that correction of the calcium. And the downside of giving escalated calcium doses is that, you know, along with the phosphate, it's going to cause compatibility issues and cause precipitates in the TPN solution. Yeah. And the third point is in terms of sodium, always think of sodium in milliequivalents per liter within your TPN, because that's how we describe sodium and all of the other IV fluids that we give to patients from D5W with no sodium all the way up to normal saline with 154 milliequivalents per liter. And for the most part, you should stay within that range unless there's some extenuating circumstance for your patient. Oftentimes when you have hyponatremia or hypernatremia, it's actually not a sodium problem, but a water problem. So always be thinking about the amount of free water the patient is getting uh, or the amount of sterile water in your IV TPN, and maybe either increasing that or decreasing that as opposed to making dramatic changes to the patient's uh, sodium content of their TPN. And another point to make is a balance between acetate versus chloride salt, right? So you want to use mostly acetate-based electrolyte salts if you're looking at uh, patients who have acidotic picture, uh, metabolic acidosis, because that would in turn increase the bicarb and decrease the chloride. And on the opposite side, if you're looking at alkalotic pictures, so metabolic alkalosis, uh, we want to use more chloride-based solutions to get the opposite effect, basically. And last but not the least, an important point to make is um, let's just keep the insulin outside of the TPN. It causes compatibility issues. It causes hard time adjusting the, the blood glucose of patient becomes hypoglycemic. It's just so much better to adjust the insulins on the subcutaneous level or if you know, there's a drip going on separately that fashion rather than adding into the TPN and perhaps wasting that bag. Well, hopefully this was a concise but helpful review for mostly the inpatient pharmacists or even the students who are going to start app irritation soon and maybe seeing TPNs or being asked to dose TPNs. This is one of those things that it's a very complicated topic, and I think just having a couple clinical pearls in your back pocket can really make a difference in terms of improving patient care. Um, if you'd like to see some tips and tricks, we'll have some references available at our website, helixtalk.com. This is episode of 113. Um, we also have just some key concepts from today's episode uh, that you can view there. We're also on Twitter at Helix Talk if you want to see previous episode clinical pearls and tips of wisdom and things like that. Feel free to follow us there. And finally, we love the iTunes five-star review, so keep those coming. And again, this uh, topic, the TPN topic, was prompted by a listener email. So if you have topics that you'd like to hear about, uh, let us know. You can find our contact information at helixtalk.com. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. 
If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.